On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to talk about dying. Yeah, uplifting topic, isn't it? Well, we're not really talking about the dying part. We're talking about how do you prepare for the day that comes when inevitably you are going to be needing your loved ones to make decisions for you. Because a lot of people don't do that. We'll explain. We'll talk about it. We're also going to be talking about the media. The media. Because a poll is out in the States, and, you know, maybe different numbers in Canada, but I don't think they'd be that much different, that says what the media is and what people kind of want it to be, we're talking about the news media, seem to be very different. We're going to talk to the former chairman of the Ryerson School of Journalism about what this means for the media going forward. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Tomorrow is National Advanced Care Planning Day. Not a day you probably have thought much about or celebrate or anything like that. Uh, not when you talk about advanced planning, we're not talking about making a reservation for a restaurant or anything. We're talking about death, really, your death, which may sound ghoulish to some people or may sound very depressing. But if you are going to plan for everything else in your life, which we generally do, it seems kind of silly or even irresponsible not to plan for what's going to happen to you when you get to your final days, whenever that may be. Claire Freeman is the executive director of the Bob Kemp Hospice. She joins us now. Claire, how are you this evening? Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. You know, when we talk to people on this show, sometimes we sort of work our way towards the big issues and build up to that. Let's with you start right in the deep end here with the big issue. Um, Why are people so uncomfortable talking about what they want in their final days? Because I think there's an awful lot of people who are. Well, there there definitely is. I think that um, sometimes we, we start talking about it when we're there, which is never great because then we can't you know, have the, you know, the, the wishes that we want, and then there's a lot of confusion for the people who might have to speak for us. But I think that generally, you know, for the most part, outside of before COVID hit, we really thought we cured death. And, um, you know, we haven't. On average, there's, there's between 250,000 and 300,000 people every year in Canada who die. So this is something that affects all of us, but it's the least thing that we talk about. Yeah, I did say off the top before you came on that uh, one story that's underreported is that Hamilton has a 100% mortality rate. Yeah. Uh, eventually. Yeah. Um, we we all will die. And one of the funny things that you just say there, and when I say funny, not like hilarious, funny, uh, ironic, is that we always talk about kids having a sense of immortality, but I'm not sure that it's just kids that have that sense. No, I think we all, you know, we all do. So, you know, we, we, we live a life thinking we're always going to be here. And one of the things that, you know, we know about people when you start to, you know, talk about your advanced care planning. And, and what I want to say also about advanced care planning, it's not just end of life, but it's most important at end of life for sure. But it's any time that you're interacting with healthcare professionals who, who when you can't speak for yourself. So if you had a car accident tomorrow, you would want somebody who's going to step in and have to make decisions for you and you couldn't speak for yourself to know what it is you want from them. And and so that's why this, this is important at any age, right? So oftentimes people think advanced care planning is only when I turn 65 and plus because we think we're closer to death. But one of the terrible things that I know about being at the hospice is that I have 18-year-olds, 25-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, who are dying from life-limiting illnesses, and it, it does happen to us. And I also know of car accidents and 
and other things are workplace accidents where, you know, people are cut out in, in the prime of their life or are in need of serious medical treatment and where they can't speak for themselves at, at young ages. But is that not a very uncomfortable discussion to have if you're an 18-year-old with your parents to say, okay, so if I get in a car accident and I'm in a coma and I'm not coming out of it and I'm brain dead, here's what I want you to do. That's, that's not an easy conversation. Well, it, I have to say I have a 30-year-old and 31-year-old and you know what? I find it easier telling them what I would want if, exactly. you know, if exactly. I'm there. But when I look at my kids and think, oh my God, what if you were in a car accident? Like it terrifies me. But at the same time, what one of the things that I, I've learned most about being at the at the hospice is that um, when people who are making decisions for you know what you want, it brings you comfort. It brings you a sense of, oh my God, I am doing as much as nobody wants to be in that place. I know that I am giving you your last wishes, right? And and advanced care planning isn't just about your medical wishes, but it's also the things that you know are meaningful for you. So one of the things that we used to do, we used to do events and around this conversation, is we played this game, and and one of the questions was, what music would you like to play, or do you want any music if this was your last day? And I did this with my brother-in-law, and it was really interesting because he had this song I'd never heard before. And all of a sudden, I thought, "Wow, if if my sister was thrust into the place where you had a car accident, and we knew we, you know, we needed to take you off a machine, I now know that you want this song played, you know. And I just know that that would bring my sister comfort if we were placed in that versus not knowing. And and so it's an important conversation. And a lot of us who have done advanced care planning, we actually say, when you actually think about it, plan it, write it down, talk to your, what's called a substitute decision maker, the person who's going to speak for you, and they know what you want, you actually can live a fuller life. You actually live more fully. So, you know, as much as it's tough, sometimes the tough, tough conversations are some of the best conversations for us to live well. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Claire, I've heard people, and I'm sure you've heard this too. I've heard people before say, I don't want to do this. I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to make a will because it's somehow bad luck. If I talk about it, I may cause it to happen. You must have heard that before. Absolutely. I mean, there's so much myth, and I think that's part of, you know, the, the you know, sort of fear or fear culture of death. And so, therefore, um, we've created that myth. And, and in actual fact, it causes so much harm. I, I can't even tell you how much harm it causes either not to have an advanced care directive about what you want in, in terms of your medical needs um, at end of life when you can't speak for yourself and also um, after you pass away. Because there are two different things that happen legally for you because your will doesn't come into place until after you pass away. And so you could have someone who's speaking for you while you're alive, mm. but it's a completely different person after you pass away. And and to not have a will um, and you have dependents, I just have to say you're really harming your dependents. How long have you worked in the hospice business, for lack of a better term? <laughs> well, I, I've I've worked at the hospice here for six years. I've I've done. I mean, I'm a trauma counselor by by trade, and I've worked with lots of families who've had tragic um, deaths, and so I, I've walked them through the other side of death, and um, I can tell you that, um, you know, grief grief is something that is complicated when, mm-hmm. you know, those legal things are, are not taken care of. 
Okay. So in this, even just, let's just stick to the six years you've been at the Bob Camp Hospice. In those six years, how often have you heard a patient say, who's now had to come in there because their life is winding down? I knew I should not have written that will because if I hadn't, I wouldn't be here. Oh, no, nobody, nobody, okay. nobody at so, all. But, so yeah. it doesn't really work like that. No, it doesn't at all. And in fact, you know, there's a lot of scrambling at, at end of life. And I see the, you know, the confusion on the patient, you know, the fear in, in the people who are being left behind. And I could tell you that, um, you know, again, by not having those conversations, I see fights in families. Sometimes if they, if they haven't settled some of those things, but also I see people being afraid and not knowing and lots of guilt that they didn't do it right. Well, and see, that to me is, you know, if I am in a situation where I'm in a, in a coma or something that I'm not, come, I'm not coming out of, or if I am whatever, you know, okay, that, that's, I can deal with that, I think, down the road. But what would bother me is if I had created that situation for my family. seems to me that by doing these things, even if you're not worried about yourself, it's about doing something to make sure your family doesn't have to get into a crisis situation like that and by laying out a plan so they can know they're doing the right thing. Absolutely. It's the greatest gift you can give to your family. Like people buy life insurance and they think that's the greatest gift. I'm going to tell you, that is not the greatest gift. (laughs) The greatest gift is actually laying out a will, you know, like for afterlife, but certainly doing advanced care planning so that they can, you know, comfort you and, and do the things that they know matter most to you. That brings people comfort way more than buying someone a life insurance policy. One of the tricky parts about this, though, and I, I, I think this is absolutely true, is most of us have not seen someone dying up close or have not seen people who may be in the same position that we may find ourselves in sometime down the road. So it's hard. We can say, oh, I want this or I want this, but we don't really know, do we, most of us? Well, no, because, you know, things change. And and that's why having the conversation and having robust conversations so that if there is something unique that happens and um, for that situation, for example, you might say, I may, I never want to be left on a machine. And so that's one thing. But just so happened, let's say when you're on that machine, it was also a time, let's say, when your daughter was getting married. And you also said, I've always wanted to be there for my daughter's wedding. Well, if I took you off the machine, you might not be able to be there for your daughter's wedding. So the substitute decision maker, knowing your robust, you know, desires in life may actually not take you off the machine that day, but actually might bring the wedding to to your bedside and then take you off. Like all of those things just make things so much better for people who are left behind. And and we've done weddings at the hospice and we've really? done celebrations. Of, oh, yeah, absolutely. And they're so beautiful because sometimes... You know, a father's dying wish to see his son or daughter get married or, or even people who are passing, you know, they said, I, I, I now want to make sure that I show her or him how much I love them. So there's lots of things that, that we can do to comfort people and, and, and to allow family members who are going to live on to, to not feel guilt and, and to know that they did everything that that, that person wanted. So important. Well, I can say that um, my mother's grandmother passed away and spent her final days at the Bob Camp Hospice, and it was a tremendous experience. And I, I, I have not been around death a lot, to be honest. And it, and my daughter has worked as a hospice nurse, and you know the, the people at her hospice were phenomenal. But it is totally scary. I mean, if you're not used to it, and if you, if you I mean, talking about death is a freak out thing for a lot of people. I absolutely get it. 
but I can, I can speak as someone who's very rarely been around it to say, you know what, if you have a plan, it kind of seems to make things a lot better. Oh, absolutely. And, and, it, and it's, it's a gift for your loved ones. So, you know, we've got a five part series that we're starting next week, um, uh, being led by Sandra Anderchuk, who is an ethicist and a community consultant and a nurse who's worked in this area for long periods of time, who it can actually lead people through, you know, five weeks, we can help you think about what your desires are, plan what it is, write it down and to have conversations. So at the end of the five weeks, you will have what we call is a binder that you can give to the person who's going to speak for you um, that I guarantee you they will thank you for. And if you don't do one, I can tell you that there are many, many discomforts that are left by not having that plan. And is that, uh, can that be found on your website? Yep, you can go to our website and, and, you know, no charge or anything, just, you know, come because we're really, really committed to helping people, you know, comfort at end of life, but also um, bringing comfort to those who are going to be grieving your loss. On a totally, well, related but unrelated note, I will say when my wife's grandmother was at Bob Kemp, I bumped into one of the nicest, kindest, most genuine people who was volunteering there, and I wrote about him later, so I can say his name. It's Canadian Football League Hall of Fame, Canadian Football Hall of Famer John Bonk was working mm-hmm. there. I don't know, is yeah. John still volunteering there? Uh, well, we don't have as many because of COVID, but yes, he's still a strong supporter. And Unbelievable. Uh, yeah, he's an amazing, amazing guy. He, he, he was in our kitchen, and, and yep. uh, yeah, he's awesome. He's yeah, awesome. no, it is it is a great place. The Bob Kemp Hospice, I, look, I don't want to visit too often, nothing personal, <laughs> no. but it's a great place. Uh, go visit their website so you can do some planning as well if you haven't already, because uh, I, I think, and I'm sure Claire would think that it'll help your family down the road and make it easier for them if it is a tragic circumstance. Claire, I really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. No problem. Thanks for inviting me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. People have opinions. And that's good. We love that people have opinions. An opinion in my mind is always better than apathy. Not everyone's opinion is expressed health in a healthy way, but we love that people have opinions. And those opinions could be about politics or sports or religion or food or art or a- anything. You're And you're entitled to have your opinion. One area where people have very, very strong opinions, and I know this from experience, is the media. If we disagree with a story, it's biased. If we agree, it's objective, whether or not it is. If something nice is said about something we dislike, the reporter or outlet is often said to be unbalanced, not mentally, but not offering proper balance. Or if something critical is said about something with which we agree, we push back and say that reporter didn't get that right or isn't giving a fair shake. This isn't new. It's always been this way. It might be louder now. It might be more exaggerated now, but it's not new critique and criticism of the media has been around forever. So the question becomes, what is the role? What should the media be in 2021? And the reason I asked that question in light of what we're talking about is a new poll has been released that was done in the States that asked this very question, what is the media or what should the media be doing? What should it be in 2021? And the answers were fascinating. No longer, get this, no longer was the media supposed to be the voice of the less powerful as it once was. That's at least not according to this poll. No longer is it the job of the media, according to this poll, to monitor the powerful or to put information out into the open or to spotlight injustices. All those things were not seen as the main role of the media. 
And according to this survey, which I found stunning, a third of people who took this poll said it's not the media is not even supposed to provide people with the facts. That's not its role. So if it's not supposed to be those things, what is it? I want to bring in Janice Neal. She's the chair of the Ryerson School of Journalism, which is the best journalism school in the world, I hope. Um, and she is an associate professor there. She joins us now. Janice, thanks for doing this today. Very much appreciate it. Thanks. Happy to join. I uh, Just this tiny correction, because like fact-checking is really important, is that yes. uh, I'm, I, am, I am most recently uh, the former chair. Former uh, chair, okay. Yeah, I am. Just recently stepped down, yeah. If 33% of people say the media isn't even supposed to be about providing facts, and that's what this survey showed. Now, it was an American survey. I suspect that it would be slightly different numbers if we did it in Canada, but probably not wildly different numbers. If, if a third of people say the media's job is not to provide even facts, what is its role? I think, I think um, when people are saying that, Maybe they are, first of all, kind of reflecting what they are seeing. And, you know, I want to draw a pretty thick line, you know, between what Americans consume in terms of media, what American media is like, um, and what we see in Canada. You know, the, um, you know, American media is very polarized. And, um, and while there are many, many outlets that are, that do provide news, there are also many outlets that have, uh, really capitalized on on being provocative and being opinionated and and their audiences choose them and you know this is actually it's had you know an impact on on the whole media ecosystem in the United States and that that opinion um, you know panel discussions and things with, with with high high degrees of opinion opinionated people on them um, have uh, have have kind of seeped into you know into a lot of media so I guess that's the first thing I'm I'm bringing I'm bringing my journalistic skepticism a little bit to you know to to what people are answering when they say it isn't necessarily about facts that, you know, listening to opinion and, and, and is, is entertaining. And perhaps that's what people, uh, perhaps that's part of what people are saying that, um, that they want, they want the news to be, to be, you know, more, more interesting, more, more, more lively. Well, if part of this is, and again, there's other things and we'll talk about the other things, but this was the big thing that struck me about that. They don't even think that the media should be about facts is part of this because we're sort of, we've heard we're in a post truth world. So facts are kind of not, are subjective now. Your truth, I mean, your truth to me is always a weird word because there's either Mm -hmm. truth or there's not, but we've now decided based on which media outlet you watch, which is your truth. And so facts are no longer really facts, I guess. Uh, you know, I I'm, I I agree that uh, that the whole that the notion of a truth is one that is is probably is much more I think flexible and malleable than we once believed because we do we are increasingly realizing that there are many there are many different truths and uh, depending on what your experience and what you are what you are bringing to it but um, you know but you know also it was for four five years Americans were were kind of hammered every day with the notion that there was such a thing as false facts and because it was politically driven by by the then president and um and so if uh if 
if American um, media consumers are kind of, have been left kind of, you know, wondering and uh, thinking about what, what, what facts are and, and even being challenged that uh, to, to think that what seemed to be factual journalism, factual reporting wasn't just because it was politically oppositional to what uh, some politicians um, believe, then they, they, they have probably very good grounds to kind of challenge, you know, what, um, what facts, you know, what, what facts are. And that, uh, and that facts, in, in a way, have kind of been, I'm putting big air quotes around this, you know, facts have kind of become, you know, weaponized. In, they mm. were, in, you know, in that, in that in that context and um and i and i think that uh that in the place of that you know opinions so people who've got experts and and people who've who have got big jobs at universities and think tanks and things uh you know with their opinions often did carry a lot of facts and i can see how that would be be sometimes it would be very muddling what is it you're listening to are you listening to facts or are you listening to opinion or analysis but to your point that you said a few moments ago, which was a lot of these different organ not all, but a lot of the news organizations, be it newspaper, radio, television, whatever, have kind of chosen their political side, offered opinion. This, in some ways, then becomes a self-inflicted wound when it, you come back to it and you say, okay, but I don't, I don't necessarily trust you anymore because I don't think that you're giving the full picture. That's self-inflicted. Yeah, absolutely. I, absolutely. And I think, uh, I think, that is part of that is definitely part of what the media business, you know, in terms of in, in terms of the trust that its uh, that its audience once had, the high degree of trust that audiences once had in in the media, that has really that has really taken taken a, a beating. I mean, it has around the world, it has in Canada as well, but um, you know, long gone. Walter Cronkite is always the you know, it's kind sure. of that's the, that's the touchstone, you know, and certainly. It has been in decline since then, as has many. You know, the world has changed significantly from when, from the perspective of Walter Cronkite, who, who could say probably anything, and it would have been taken by, by his audiences as fact. But, um, but, um, but you know, but but certainly in in the United States, led you know, led mostly by cable news. Uh, you see, you know, there isn't the same kind of polarization that there is in in. Um, in media that start that are newspapers or grounded in newspapers. Even if you set out today, if you were a Ryerson journalism student and your goal was to be the next Walter Cronkite and you spent your entire career doing everything humanly possible to be objective and fair all the time in a social media world when context gets lost when someone takes one sentence and that you've said it seems to me it would be impossible because people don't look at the big picture anymore you will have one sentence and that will get mangled or twisted or interpreted and immediately you're labeled one side or the other well that's true that's true but uh you know you mentioned you know a ryerson journalism student so most of the students who uh who come to our uh, come to our program and and when they when they graduate work for canadian media and i you know, I, I said there was a thick black line across, you know, across that border. And, you know, um, I mean, I want to say that 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 more than one study um, in in recent years, in the last two to three years in, in Canada, have found, uh, pr- I would say, a pretty sharp, 
sharp difference in terms of the polarization uh, and the perspective that that um, a study just two, three years ago done by McGill University and University of Toronto found that um, that people who consume the news and in varying rates, so heavy consumers, but also people who consume less of it across the political spectrum, they have trust in some of the largest, I guess, you know, you could say kind of the big four media organizations they have huge amounts of trust. They trust them probably as much as their friends. I'm talking about 85% and higher for media organizations such as the CBC, the Toronto Star, the Globe Mail, National Post. So um, smaller media organizations have, you know, had less trust. The, the poor Toronto Sun had, uh, you know, had, had a little bit less trust. But, I mean, it is a marked difference between... On, on, depending on which side of the border that you are, that you are, uh, that you are standing on, and it's and and you know, survey after poll after poll, then that that is then analyzed by, by um, media and political science researchers are are you know find that that uh, that Canadians um, there's a great consensus on what actually facts are, mm. even even on diverse issues such as you know um, climate change or refugees or human rights. Um, uh, and it's uh, and it's and it's and it's very yeah it's very it's very interesting and it's really important to uh, to think about. Of course, so, I I say there's a big thick black line across that border, but you know there are there are you know there are Canadians who are watching American media, so that is you know uh, of course not yeah. factored in there. But since you've said, and, and I think you're absolutely right, that there is this issue of trust and there's an issue of maybe skepticism where people are looking to find out where now where media personalities' leanings are, is it a mistake for reporters? I'm not talking about opinion writers or opinion speakers, but is it a mistake for reporters to use social media to offer opinions on different topics? Wow, because it's giving away a, then their opinion, even though it may not be in their writing, but then you look at their tweet and it says, I hate Doug Ford or I hate Justin Trudeau. And have you not just given away all your objectivity? <laughs> That's a, I mean, that is a fascinating question. And, uh, and I'm going to say it is one that is a cause that is currently being discussed probably in every, every news organization and every newsroom in the country because, uh, because um, most organizations have got policies that, uh, that, that, uh, that govern what, what people, uh, what, what reporters put out on social media, even in their, even on their own channels, even on their own quote unquote, you know, uh, private time. So even as private citizens, there are, there are organizations that've got guidelines that uh, that that really limit what what reporters are saying, which um, which some see as an infringement of their of their you know mm. of their of free free expression, um, and uh, and it is I think it is it is a really challenging issue. And by saying it's a really challenging issue, and I'm, I'm not saying yes or no. <laughs> I'm not trying to dodge you. I'm, no, no, it's a it's a it really is, tough um, one. You know, it is it is tough because again because the role. Because the role of the journalist um, is is changing. It, it is you know you, you you mentioned objectivity, and we you know the the notion of being an objective journalist uh, is one easily we can easily set aside, and probably did twenty or thirty years ago. Um, the practice of being objective is what journalists should strive to do. And, you know, it is being aware of the biases that you bring and trying and 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 being aware of them and bringing and and yet 
still trying to um, to ascertain facts or you know or balance of opinion from from across uh, from across the spectrum. So if you if if you know if we are more comfortable with that, if we are comfortable with saying, of course, journalists are humans. They have they of course they have beliefs, and of course you can't you can't lock them up when you uh, when you go to work. Um, then, by extension, you can see why why journalists feel that they should be able to express their opinions on on social media, and then challenge uh, their you know audiences to find you know if if they bring bias, if there is bias in the stories that they do, to kind of to be challenged by it, or to find their you know invite their audiences to find to find challenge in it. It is not necessarily a direct link, I, and this is you know, and I'm. Going to tell you, this is not something that uh, instructors at the School of Journalism practiced, um, you know, 20, two decades ago, practiced or believed, you know, that uh, that that the uh, that that it is possible to separate separate these these um, your beliefs and in what you practice out, and that what, you can still be be a be a good journalist and have your have perhaps some of your views known on social media. There are so many other things in this in this survey that I would love to get into, but we don't have time. But there's one other I want to ask you about because I found this other. That was to me the 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 facts and that kind of thing and the objectivity, obviously. But one of the other things this survey suggested is people don't want to hear what's broken. They want to hear solutions and they want to hear about things that are working and they want to hear good news. And has that balance been lost at times in the media? Has the media concentrated too hard on the negative at times? Well, I think that you know, yes, frankly, that that is the definition of news. You've probably heard this before, you know. Do <laughs> at a time when there was heavy, lots of planes taking off in the airport every day. You know, what made news were the ones that didn't, or the one, you know, that that didn't make it. That 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 news was by and large defined as the unusual happening, and often that was the you know, that was the negative, um, that was the negative exception. There has been, um, there, there definitely is a, a, a movement, I'm going to suggest, uh, uh, you know, schools of thought in called solutions journalism, uh, coming out of the United States. And, um, and there are, there definitely are Canadian media that are, that are kind of looking at some of those practices and trying to bring them into, um, into their, uh, into their work. Um, you know, I think there was, I think there was a, a lot of skepticism. I think there was a bias. I do want to say, you know, in in journalism for for many many years that that stories that were um, that were more positive were seen as soft. Um, you know, it, uh, all, although you know, feel good stories about you know a dog being lost for three years, find, returning home. At, you know, that that of course. But you're not a real journalist if you do that. You're a real exactly. journalist if you cover the White House or Parliament Hill, not if you find lost dogs. <laughs> That was your. I mean, you're right. That was the, that was seen as the as the primary role of the journalist, and and it was seen and and solutions journalism. You know, and I think what 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 you're talking about that is being reflected in that poll doesn't have to be soft. You can still bring the same degree of of, of questioning and challenging and and you know and looking looking at the facts. However, it is you know it is kind of looking at you know why something why something works. Um, why uh, instead of uh, instead of perhaps a series of things that that don't? So in fact, even looking for the thing that is newsworthy, which is a little bit different than the than than all the rest, 
you know, uh, that that would be that that would be newsworthy today. So, um, you know, I think audiences hunger for it. Look, I, I you know, I'm a, I'm a journalist, but I'm also, also audience. I'm I am. I have to say I'm surprised how many times I do. I do really seek out stories that are going to give me not not just a, not just to feel good, but to give me an idea about how something could be transformed into something better, how we can make this world a better place. You know, journalism is, is, is if you believe in the watchdog function, which, um, which uh, I think many people should still do, is, is about keeping, keeping those in, in power in check and uh, keeping an eye on it. But it's, that is to an end to, you know, ensuring that this world ugh, should be a better place yeah. We leave it in a better place than the one that we found it, and I think solutions journalism, if you want to if you want to say, could could do could play a really important role in that. We only have a minute left, and I'll just one more thing on this one because I, I I really do wonder, and I'm not trying to be cynical, if when people say they want good news and they want to see the news filled with good news stories, and the reality and the practical execution is true, and the reason I say this, every single news outlet now has algorithms and computer programs that can see how stories are doing with clicks and time read and everything else. And you ask around to newspapers and TV and radio and the stories that always every single day are at the top of the readership thing are crime and murder and fires and horrible mayhem things. And very occasionally one of those nice human interest stories pops in there. But the the claim that we want good news and the reality of what people read or follow seems to be very different. Absolutely. And that's, uh, and, you know, and that is a tension that when, when people were, when journalists were sitting in newsrooms and, and, you know, and many newsrooms have brought in the kind of live, almost live ticker tape of what, what audiences are clicking onto. And, you know, you've spent three days chasing, um, you know, chasing something at city hall, um, and put a lot of work into it. And you look up on the board and you see that, uh, that, you know, a story about, um, I'm going to talk about that dog, you know, again, you know, a dog that finds his way home is, you know, is over and over again is kind of the top story. It can be a bit, you know, it can be a bit discouraging, but, uh, but a media, you know, media's organization's responsibility is to tell all those, is to tell all those stories. It's a fascinating uh, survey. You can find people can find it online. It's written by the Associated Press, the story I found. Um, You can go look it up. It's easy to find. Janice Neal, former chair of the Ryerson School of Journalism and associate professor. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you. It was lovely talking to you. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.